0: My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering. So please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Uh, We have a ton of questions today. And actually, this week I am recording two episodes because Sean and I are going to be gone next week house hunting, which I am equal parts excited and also nervous about just because I've never done this before. Don't know what I'm doing. um, And I also hope that we find the house that we would love and want to be in forever. Well, at least for a while, right? Um, So, anyway. That will be happening next week. So this is our first time like bulk filming, if you want to call it that, or bulk recording podcasts. Um, because I don't want you to miss out. So we have a ton of good questions. Today's podcast, as as usual, has 10 questions. I feel like that is the amount that we can get through nicely without feeling rushed and also gives us plenty of time to like talk about, you know, whatever the topic is. So without further ado, let's get into those questions. And question number one says. Hey, Katie, I beat myself up a lot over not being able to self-harm severely. I am suicidal in my thoughts, but my actions aren't always reflecting that directly. Every time I ask those around me for help regarding these suicidal thoughts, because I have not actively tried to take my life, I always feel like I'm not taken seriously enough. I'm sorry about that. That's ridiculous. It makes me feel like I'm a coward for not taking the next step or that my entire situation is one made one made up lie, and it's not really a big deal. I don't know how to feel about this, or if I'm alone. I'm scared and confused and just a horrible place to be stuck in. I hope this wasn't too confusing of a paragraph. Not at all. Thank you so much for these podcasts. They really help. Lots of love. I'm glad you like them. Yay. Um. Okay, first of all, you're not alone. I have a lot of patients who have struggled with self harm over the years and, and have this same thing that like, oh, I'm not doing it Severely enough, so therefore, I'm not sick enough. And we all know how much our mental illnesses like to lie to us about us needing to be a certain level of ill in order to be deserving of care. And I just want you all to hear that no matter what you're struggling with, you are deserving of care. You don't have to be feeling the worst you've ever felt, you don't have to be actively suicidal, you don't have to be completely entrenched in an eating disorder in order to receive care. We can all benefit from care at any time in our lives, frankly, all the time in our lives. So reach out and speak up and know that you are deserving. And it is whatever level you're at, anybody all around the world, no matter how you're feeling, that is enough for you to be taken seriously and for you to get support and help. Now back to this question, because I just wanted you all to hear that, that that's just a blanket statement. And I mean that 100%. That is the truth. That is... I've said this over and over, but all of us can benefit from therapy. So don't feel like you have to be feeling the worst you've ever felt to get that support. Um, Now, when it comes to self-injury, the self-injury itself is a huge red flag slash indicator of something else going on. And I've talked about this in regards to eating disorders as well. But any kind of unhealthy coping skill can also be applied to alcoholism or drug abuse. If we find ourselves, um, ooh, sorry, something in my eye okay, we're good. We're, we're safe. Don't worry. Um, But whenever we're doing something to kind of numb out from how we feel, whether that's using eating disorder behavior, self-injury behavior, alcohol, drugs, uh, shopping addiction, gambling, uh, sex, we can use a lot of different things to help us better cope when it really doesn't help us cope. It's just a numbing out and a distraction from what we're feeling. That is, again, that red flag or that indicator that something's going on. Because in order to need to do that unhealthy coping skill, that over shopping, that self-injury urge, that eating disorder behavior, that alcohol addiction. In order to need that, we have to have something underlying that we're trying to like numb out from or cope with. We just don't have the right tools, right? So we're trying to cope with what we've got, but what we've got is just not that beneficial. And so that's the truth about this is something's going on. It could be um, trauma in our past or abuse. It could be, uh, could be borderline personality disorder. A lot of my patients self-injure who have borderline personality disorder, which usually comes out of uh, abuse, not always, but it could also be like the, just the overall uh, intense emotions that we feel as someone with BPD. That could be the reason as well that we're trying to numb out. There could be a lot of reasons. And so what I want you to I guess because the question really is, is more about, you know, I, I don't know if it's like, I don't know how to feel about this, I guess is the is the real it's not even really the question. It's just the, the statement. I'm scared and confused. So self-injury is not a suicide attempt. And I know that there's a lot of misconceptions and confusion out there, but I just want you to hear it from me. Self-injury it's, it's not a suicide attempt. A suicide attempt is a suicide attempt. And I know that that seems like, well, duh, but a lot of people confuse the two. Self-injury is a way to numb out. If any of you out there do self-injure on the regular, you can tell me, and I'm sure you know this, that like the, the reason that you're doing it is not to take your own life. The reason that you're doing it is to numb out from what's going on or to make yourself feel better. Or we don't know what else to do to cope with all that's happening, so we're going to do that, Right. And so it's not an active suicide attempt, but, and big but, listen to this, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take it seriously. Self-injury is still, again, it's an indicator. It's a red flag. There's something else going on that we need help with. And so I'm not really sure because there's not a, a real question in this, but the the thing that I want this person to hear who asked this question is that self-harm is serious. It can be different from suicidal thoughts and attempts not all people who, who self-injured are suicidal some are but not all all of us regardless of the level if you won't even call it that of the severity like you said um deserve help and care and i would encourage you to reach out and find a therapist who understands self-injury that would be what i would call and ask for if you feel like you can um a therapist who specializes in dialectical behavior therapy or DBT uh, would be one that would understand self-injury fully because those of us who who understand DBT and practice DBT therapy um we usually that's because we deal with a lot of borderline personality disorder patients and a lot of those people struggle with self-injury so you can see how finding a therapist who does DBT would be best because they'll most likely understand self-harm urges and all that comes along with it. And one thing that I would I want to offer up a resource and something that I would encourage you to look up is and I'll try to remember maybe I'll put it in here. I'll try to remember put in the description. But if I don't, I want you to search safe alternatives impulse log on Google. If you put that in just safe S A F E alternatives everything spelled just regularly. Safe alternatives impulse log. A link will come up and there's a video there talking about impulse logs, how to put them together, what they are. And I would encourage you to use these, use these impulse logs when you feel the urge to self-injure, because like I said, it's just a way to cope with what's going on. And if we slow down our reaction time and don't just jump to the self-injury or jump to the self-harm conclusion, if instead we use this impulse log to better understand what we're really feeling and why we're trying to numb out in the way that we are, we can not self-injure as often, and we can better understand why we have this urge and what's going on. And it can be really healing. And it's something that I always have my patients do. So it's a great tool and technique to be used in therapy when you're working with a therapist, but it's also just something you can start using today. And I would encourage any of you out there who do struggle with self-injury to uh, look that up and try that out. Um, Yeah. And then I guess the last little bit I'd have to say is that you're not a coward for not wanting to take your own life. Again, self-injury is not always suicidal. Thoughts or suicide attempts, it often has nothing to do with that. And that doesn't make you a coward. That just means you're suffering and people aren't understanding why and and you're we're not taking the time to be curious about it, right? And so your situation is not made up. It's not a lie. It is a big deal because it's affecting you and you don't like it and it's upsetting and that's all it takes to make something a big deal. So that those are really my thoughts about it. It's clearly a significant thing that's going on. There's a reason your self-injury urges ex- exist and the reason that they're happening all the time. Self-injury is not always suicidal or suicide attempts, I guess. And impulse logs can really help. And any self-injury just tells us something's going on that we need some support with. And so I would encourage you you know to to get that help, to reach out, to use those impulse logs and know that it will get better question number two. Hi, Katie, how do we actually process any emotion or situation? Good question. I never know how long to sit with hard emotions. I end up crying for a few minutes and then just saying to myself, okay, time to do something else now and pushing it away. How is it possible that feeling it or talking about it helps us process and move past it? I feel like I end up stuck in talking in the talking about a stage, but I'm never able to actually move on. This is a great question, and I think I might turn this into a full video. I'm going to copy and paste this because I think that this is something that we could all kind of benefit from. um, Mainly because I've never talked about this, but I talk a lot about the need to talk things out and process it. And so I know I have a video. I have an older video. If you just look up uh, Katie Morton process, I'm sure it will come up. It's like processing things in therapy. Like what? Like what the fuck does that mean, right? Because we use that word, but what does processing it. What does that mean? That doesn't what does that seems made up, right? So the way that we actually process any emotion or situation is first by talking about it. Okay. Talking about it and uh learning about it is the most important and really the first step. We in crying and feeling it is fine. We can do that. I think the few minutes is a little short. Everyone's gonna be different, but I would encourage you to give yourself you know, a whole day to do it like on a weekend or an evening. I think sometimes we need like a good half hour of a cry about something at least is good. And then to feel shitty about it for a few days is also very healthy. So giving yourself that time versus feeling like a rush to get back into it. Okay, time to do something else now that I don't think that's sufficient for you, because that's why it's still bothering you. Okay, so I just want to throw that out there. But then the 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 first real step is in talking about it and the reason talking about it helps is because it helps us better understand what why we feel the way we feel and what's really going on so often in life we're like on autopilot i don't know if any of you can agree with that but like we can have shitty things happen and be like oh that was a, i had a bad day and then we just move on we like don't even pay attention we don't uh listen to our body and it telling us like how we're feeling and why we're feeling the way we feel we don't give it time to I don't even know, we don't give ourselves time to really think about it or consider what's happened. Then we just rush right on to the next thing, leaving all of the stuff that's happened, all the stuff we're feeling still uh, not dealt with, for, for lack of a better term. And that's why talking it out and being curious about it and understanding why we're feeling the way we feel What are the various emotions we feel? Because even when we talk about it, we often don't really talk about how we feel about something. Unless we have some of those relationships with other people where we can really just dig into it with a friend. You know, we all have some of those friends where you can really get into it with them where you're like, I don't know, I was just feeling this way. But then... Then I was angry and it was so strange. And, you know, if we can talk about things throughout like the different stages of emotions and why we think we felt those different emotions at different times, then that's beneficial. But usually we just kind of talk about, yeah, this shitty thing happened. We don't really reflect on how we felt or what was happening at the time and all the other things leading up to it. Then talking about it on its own is not going to be enough. But the reason that talking helps is it allows for that curiosity and that understanding. And so that's kind of that stage. Okay, so we've we've let ourselves cry and feel it. Maybe we've even journaled about it. And journaling can fall into that kind of like talking processing, because that helps us better understand what we're feeling, and why we're feeling what we're feeling, and what's happening in our life, like what, um what situations are going on. That is kind of part of that, like education on ourselves. And I know it sounds weird to be like, you need to be educated on your own experience. But we do because we're autopilot. We're just like, asleep at the wheel, just going through life, not paying attention. And so I would just encourage you to be a little curious to take the time to figure out what you're feeling and why. And then the final stage is where do I go from here? What are my next steps? How do I move past this? And the moving past is in the okay, I've thought about this enough and I have no new thoughts, no new revelations, no new information. There's nothing else I can learn from this, which actually, if you think about it, you guys happens pretty quickly. Like if we want to compare this to let's say uh, a bad breakup, okay, let's say we were in love with someone and they broke up with us and we're very hurt. Okay, we can reflect back on the relationship and consider all the times they did something shitty or when we noticed them pulling away. We can reflect on that and be like, Oh, yeah, maybe that wasn't that good of a relationship. And maybe they are right. Maybe I was too dependent on them. And we can reflect on our own participation in the breakup and their participation in the breakup. And because we both played a role, things don't end. And we don't get in fights just because one thing happened, like we both participate, right? Both of us are involved. So we can reflect on that. We can think about it, we can talk about it, we can say I felt sad and then mad. And then just like I'm grieving it. And, and then I'm like, kind of depressed or worried thinking that I'm not going to find anybody else. You know, we can go through these different kinds of emotions, but at that point there's nothing else for us to really dig into. Sure, we can ruminate and make ourselves fucking crazy, and we all know how fun that is. Not. That's not fun at all. So, after we've learned what we need to learn about what we're feeling in the situation and we can reflect on our own our own role in the thing that happened to us, then We have to decide what we want to do moving forward. So in this case, if it was a bad breakup, that final step would be me saying, you know what I learned? I learned that I don't want to be in a relationship where someone's too dependent on me and there aren't healthy boundaries where I can't, I'm not free to be myself. I have to consider them all the time. I don't want that. I don't like that. And it's not comfortable. Okay. So that would be, you know, that would be the thing that I would do. Those are the things I learned, and now moving forward, these are the things that I want in a relationship. And I'm going to allow myself another couple of days to grieve, and I can feel sad about it, but I'm not going to let my brain ruminate and spin on all the things that could have been, or the conversations that could have been had, or things I could have done. No, those coulda, shoulda, would are things that I'm going to learn from, and I'm going to take the things that I want to make happen in my next relationship, and I'm going to remember those, and I'm going to try to make those. Exist in my current relationships, and I'm going to make sure that I uh, bring them to my next relationship. Does that make sense? And I know the breakup is like one small example, but I'm just using that example to kind of show you the process. And so the feeling about it and talking about it helps us understand it, helps us validate our experience, helps us grieve. Then the next step is like the learnings and the moving on, and what do we want to do next? So that's really what I want you to. To pay attention to. Are you just ruminating? That might be when you say you're stuck in the talk about it stage. You're probably just ruminating. And you're not allowing yourself because a lot of times we have to give ourselves our we have to personally give ourselves permission, which I know sounds weird, but we have to give ourselves permission to move on. And that might involve us saying in our head, I'm not gonna think about this anymore. Thought stopping. Nope, 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 stop, stop, stop that's over, I'm moving on, the learnings are, you know, and we can distract and we can keep busy with other things to help make that move happen. Especially when it comes to like, I'm talking about breakups, you know, because that was the example is I know when, um, when I had a bad breakup, or even just like a fight with a, a boyfriend or a friend or anything like that, I would do other things to distract me after I'd done the crying and the writing and the like thinking and talking about it, then I would just try to keep busy. And I would move on past it because I'd allow myself the time to feel it and and understand it. But I can only you can't just keep doing that. And I think a lot of us, especially And I'm not saying that men don't do this too, but I know women especially get caught in that, like, talk about it, talk about it, feel it, feel it, feel it, process it, process it, ruminate, ruminate. And we encourage each other to do that because we're hyperverbal people, we tend to be. And so we get caught in this loop where there's no new information because we're not in that relationship anymore, or that fight is already over and it only lasted for like three minutes. So that's all the content we've got for it. We tend to get caught in that loop. And so I would encourage you to notice when you're just going back over old stuff, because it's like when we have a wound or we have something happen that's hurtful to us, it's like the processing you talk about is like a stitching it up. But when we keep going over it, it's like we're just tearing those sutures out. It's like that postal service song. It's like your heart won't heal if you keep tearing out the sutures. And so that's where we keep ourselves held in this like talking processing and it becomes hurtful. It's more damaging that it actually is good. I hope that makes sense. But again, I think I'll make a whole video about this. I just have to figure out like how it would look. Um, because we don't talk about that enough. But we can't keep talking and processing. There's a there's a, uh, going to be a certain point that you reach where you're like, there's no new information to talk about. I don't have anything new to, to give to this. And even if you think you do, I want you to consider if you're just spinning this old conversation in a new way, because we do that too. Um, yeah, I hope that helps. Okay, moving on to question number three hi Katie have you ever needed to take time to grieve when a client has finished their sessions with you it's a good question I know you've said before that as clients we need to take time to grieve the loss of that relationship but I'm wondering if you've ever had to do the same as a therapist in all honesty um only once and I'll tell you why only once because as a therapist the relationship is just different right it's not it's not a safe space safe place for me to share with you. It's the opposite. It's a safe place for you to share with me. And therefore, I'm not personally about my own life invested in that relationship. That's why there's a difference. And so I have not grieved the loss of a patient ending sessions. I've been sad to see them go. But the thing that's weird is like, as a therapist, I'm not I'm sad to see them go in the fact that I won't get to see them anymore, but I'm more excited for them because them not needing me is actually the goal. And so for me to ruminate too much or want to keep people in session just feels really unethical. And so I don't get bummed out. I get more excited for them. And then I usually let my patients know as long as it's a healthful, like a healthy breakup of therapy, you know, therapist breakup, um, an ending of therapy, I guess I could call it as long as it's healthy, I'll be like, feel free to email me every year or so, just to keep me updated if you want. I only have a couple patients who've done that. Um, but you know, sometimes I allow them to, and it's kind of great to be able to keep in touch and know how they're doing. And some of them send me like Christmas cards with little updates and things like that. And it's really great. Um, I do, however, I had one patient and I wrote about this in my second book. Um, I had a patient, one of my first patients ever, was she my first, she might've been my first patient ever. You guys, I think she was, um, Anyway, her her mom decided she wasn't going to go anymore for various reasons that you'll read about in my book that made it really hard for me to lose that session or that patient, if that makes sense. And I was worried about her safety. And there was a lot of like, I had to call CPS, it was very complicated. Um, however, that was that was hard for me. And I had to kind of talk about it. But at the time, it was my first patient, right? So I was still in supervision and still seeing my um, my wonderful supervisor, Ken. Hi, Ken, if he's listening, I doubt. But um, anyway, I... Sorry, guys, I dropped my slipper. If you heard that bang, that's what that was. Um, anyway, I had asked him about it and processed it and talked it through with him. And it was just really a bummer to to see her go because she wasn't supposed to go. Our sessions weren't ended in a very healthy way. It was like one week, I was seeing her and the next she just never showed up again. So that's how that happened. And usually and and that was when I worked at the free clinic. It's a really low cost clinic uh, in North Hollywood. But now that I'm in private practice, it's a little different. And I only see adults for that reason. Because parents can be the worst, you guys, they can be great, but they can also be the worst. Um, And it makes it really difficult sometimes for therapists to do their job. And so anyway, all that in mind, that was the only client that I kind of had to I don't know if even grieve is the right word it was like more process and grief was probably part of it, but it was more just processing that and understanding that there are things that are out of my control. And sometimes I can only, you know, as a therapist, I'm limited as to what I can do. And so I'd done all the things I had to do and needed to do. And then it was out of my hands and that I had to like deal with that feeling. And it was really terrible and I hated it and it was really sad. So Yeah, I guess that's the only example. And it's just different, I guess, because like I said, as a therapist in my private practice, usually there's step downs, like we start going every other week for sessions, or I refer patients out for a higher level of care, and then maybe they don't decide to come back. Like there's kind of this process that you work with in therapy, so that it's not it doesn't feel so abrupt. And then it feels good. And then I'm excited for them to like, go out and spread their wings. Or I'm excited for you to finally see a trauma specialist to be able to get that work done, because we were trying our best and we just couldn't get there. You know, there's going to be all these different things along the way that we've worked on haven't worked on, uh, and we're able to either do it with someone else, or we've completed our work, and you get to like you know fly free from the the nest kind of thing and so yeah, those are my thoughts about it it It's interesting though because i I could see how people would think that that's kind of weird, but I hope you can understand that it's like I'm not invested in the relationship personally about my own things. I'm not sharing with you my own private things in the way that you're sharing with your therapist. So it's just a little bit different. Um, And I get excited that you don't need me anymore. Because as weird as it sounds, that's the goal. And that's what we've been working towards. And I'm supposed to be your cheerleader. So I get excited. And I'm like, go out there and kick ass, you know, so yeah. Okay. Question number four. Hi, Katie, how can I ask my therapist about a specific disorder? without seeming like I'm self-diagnosing? This is a great question. I've done a lot of research on my specific symptoms and would like to ask to be evaluated for a specific disorder or just ask my therapist's opinion if I could even qualify for that specific disorder. But I don't know a lot of mental health professionals who Oh, but I know that a lot of mental health professionals d- really dislike people self-diagnosing with the help of the internet. So how do I ask about something specific without seeming like I have already self-diagnosed? I really think this is interesting. And I, I've talked about this before. I actually don't have a problem with, uh, with my patients coming in with ideas of what they think they're suffering from. That's really helpful. Nobody knows your symptoms or your situation better than you. But I would assume, especially old fuddy-duddy therapists, and no offense to older people. I mean, I'm 37. I'm not like a spring chicken anymore. But I'm also not like 68 and like being a total dickwad to people telling them that they shouldn't get on the internet and find out stuff because that's going to be like offensive or upsetting. I don't know. I think people, some people have egos about their just have an ego about their job and their credentials and think like nobody else can do it but me and how dare you use the internet i went to school blah 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 you are a like specialist in you you're the expert in your own experience and i don't think that any therapist should i don't know should take offense to that i feel like we should encourage that because you can't give yourself a diagnosis, okay? Sure, we can self-diagnose and be like, this is what I have, but it's not held up by any kind of you know, professional, right? We have to kind of sign off on it. And the reason that, you know, so you're not giving yourself a diagnosis, you're just telling me what you know, and you're giving me a couple ideas of the things that you think are difficult for you. And I think that's really helpful because then we can talk it out. I can tell you my perspective. And I, th- I always believe that diagnosing someone or offering up different diagnostic options is a conversation. It's not something I just give to you, like you don't have a choice. It's something that we discuss and we come to an agreement on. And we check in on every so often because diagnoses can change. So anyways, that those are kind of my two cents about that process as a whole. And I think it's very helpful. And I'm thankful for the internet, because it helps people educate themselves. And if someone doesn't agree with their diagnosis, I'm always open to hearing them out. Because it's their diagnosis. So when it comes to asking your therapist about a specific disorder, all I would say is I would keep it very simple. I would list off the symptoms that you have. And I would say, hey, let's say I'm your therapist, you'd be like, hey, Katie, the other day, I know I was reading online. I know online is not the best resource, but someone was talking about having ADHD. And they, they talked about these symptoms. And I feel like I have those symptoms. Does that Does that mean that I have ADHD? I just wanted to to talk to you about it because that really just sounded like me. And I've never felt as understood as I did in that description. We have a conversation. So you're checking in on them. So in a way, we're kind of like diffusing their potential ego, which they shouldn't have. Shame on you, other people acting like people don't can't do some research and try to figure it out um, and bring in the information to discuss with you. That we should encourage that behavior. So, anyways. That's how I would broach the subject is I would just bring it up as I, you know, heard this thing, I read this thing, I saw this thing, they talked about these symptoms, and I experienced those and, oh, like mind blowing. And so I wanted to talk to you about it, because I wondered if you thought that that diagnosis fit as well. Because, you know, you could even if they are really you think they have a big ego about it, you can be like, because you know, you're the professional, but I know how I feel. And then just just have a conversation. I think that that's completely okay. You don't, you're not sounding like you've already diagnosed yourself. You're, you're pretty much just telling them, Hey, the, these symptoms in this situation came across, you know, in my, in my phone or on my, in my email. And I was reading about it. I was watching about it and it just really resonated with me. So I want to talk about it. And I think that's the real ask isn't like can you diagnose me with this? Because that is a little, that would be a little pushy to me. I'd be like, okay, let's hold on. Let's have a conversation. We don't need to jump to a diagnosis. That would be my pushback. However, I think it is fair to be like, hey, can we talk about this? Like, do you think this fits me or not? And why? And know that if they don't agree with you, that doesn't mean you have to agree with them either. Okay. You can push back and be like, but, but I also have this. And if they have another diagnosis in mind, just be open to hearing them out. Because sometimes we see things or understand things that you don't. And that's why the between your experience and your expertise in yourself, and our education and expertise in the mental health realm, come together to get you the best care. So it's like we have to share everything we know about ourselves and our situation and what we feel. And then it can reflect on to a therapist or a psychi- psychiatrist, psychologist, you know, social worker, whoever, and that then they can like, You know, reference other things they know that maybe we don't know, right? Because I will give credit where credit is due. Professionals have a more in depth understanding of different diagnoses, what they mean, how they present, what to look for, things like that. Where we might just be hearing one other person's story who has, you know, three different diagnoses and we're like, that's me. And sure, some of that might, you know, work out, but some of it might be different. I'm just saying that, you know, it's best to share your information and talk about it with your therapist. So, that's. I hope that gives you kind of an idea of how to have that conversation because I don't want you to think of it, if we come in saying like, I have suchity such because I watched this thing, that might get you a little pushback if your therapist or whoever you're like has a little bit of an ego about it, but I would encourage you just to broach the subject as like, let's have a conversation, I read this thing or saw this thing and, and I think that it fits me. Can we talk about that? Do you think that, that that's correct? and then just be open to a conversation. And it might be, you know, more than one session worth of a conversation, because maybe they thought it was something else. And now they're curious about other symptoms, and they want you to track thoughts and all that stuff. Um, Diagnosing should take a little bit of time. Some diagnoses are very easy to see and to rule out quickly. But a lot of them, like especially personality disorders, take a long time to to ensure that they are in fact a personality disorder and not something else. Like I can't tell you how many people who have bipolar disorder um, are misdiagnosed with depression or anxiety or people with BPD are misdiagnosed as bipolar. So some things take time and sometimes will be misdiagnosed, but sharing the information you have can only benefit you. And I think it's just You know, framing it in the, in a way that's like, "Hey, I think this is going on with me. What do you think? Cool, cool. And I'm glad that you're paying attention and and considering what you're, uh, what is going on with you. Again, you are the specialist. You are the one that knows the most about yourself. And so I just would really, I'm I'm glad. I think that that's helpful. And any therapist who doesn't think that's helpful and who shames you for trying to do your own, we call it psychoeducation, where you're like learning about what you're struggling with, if they don't support you doing that, I don't think they're very good at their jobs. I always want to empower my patients to do their own research and learning and um, better understanding of what they're going through so that together we can you know, come up with better tools and resources, and and make sure the diagnosis that we're talking about is correct. and And I want you to feel like an active participant in your the diagnosing process and in your treatment. I don't want you to feel like I'm the one running the show. I think that that's kind of ass backwards, but that's just my opinion. Okay, question number five. This is an amazing coffee cup, by the way, you guys. First of all, it says, "As I suspected, I was right all along." Right, right all along. I think I said wrong. Wow. Wow. Is it Monday? No, it's Tuesday. But McKenna gave this to me. And it's amazing because it's. if you see how big it is, I just need one cup of coffee now. (laughs) Because it's so big and I love it. Okay. Question number five. Hi, Katie. Why do I feel the need to hear from my therapist that I am sick enough and or that she's worried about me? Interesting. Why do I constantly crave that validation? Hmm this can come from a lot of different places. Now the first and my knee jerk reaction is attachment. Very interested about your life growing up and how supportive or emotionally supportive in general, your parents or caregivers were Does your family not pay attention to you that did, did they were they not really there for you emotionally when you needed them. I'm very interested in that. And I'd like to know more because craving that validation and craving that like Yes, you're sick enough, and I worry about you. That sounds kind of attachment based. And that sounds very, maybe borderline personality disorder esque, or just having some attachment issues could have uh, lots of anxiety. Sometimes anxiety can come away, we can come away with an anxiety disorder when we've had emotional neglect in our childhood where it looks like everything is good oh our parents you know fed us and we had clothes and went to a good school but they really weren't there for us like they're like oh we don't cry oh we don't need that oh and they just or they just ignore us completely because they're so preoccupied with their own situation um so that i mean that's like my my gut is like ooh it's something like that however there's also a place and i want to i want to validate everyone who's felt this because it's very common also by the way i want you to know we have thousands of people in our community who have struggled with this and wondered about this so don't think that you're weird or anything's wrong it's very normal there's i want to, that's why i want to talk a little bit about like the therapeutic relationship and how healing that can be and that's kind of why it, it triggers or or starts these like attachment based kind of feelings like i need validation i want them to worry about me i want to see them some people have a big issue knowing that their therapist sees anybody else um there can be a little bit of you know not it's not even ownership because that's not the right word but it's like uh she's mine she's no one else's or you know it's my therapist can't be anybody else's therapist and that kind of uh it's special for me thing that people can struggle with when it comes to therapy because often in our life we haven't had anybody who really hears us who lets us sit with all that we're going through who supports us and guides us and is consistent all of those things might be completely foreign to us and now that we have those things all of a sudden we're like wow our brain is like I've been fucking needing this our whole life right and so it can be really difficult for us to to not want more of it does that make sense and so we can want them to be worried about us we can we can like want to elicit more of that kind of dopamine hit that we're getting from having someone who's supportive and loving and that can be that can you know Cause us to do a lot of different things. Like I've had patients in the past who've struggled to get better because they want to keep seeing me and at the threat of me referring them out. Cause I'm like, wow, we've been plateauing for a long time. And so I'm, I don't think I'm a good fit because we're not moving forward. Then all of a sudden they miracu- miraculously get better. And then we have to have a discussion about their connection with me and, you know, boundaries and attachment and what they can expect from me and what they can't and, and it's really uncomfortable for them. But I think it's kind of important as part of our healing process, knowing that, you know, you won't only get attention and support just if you're feeling bad, you, you can get attention and support for getting better too. And so anyway, I just wanted to kind of discuss that as a whole, because it's very, very common. And, and there's a lot of different reasons in there of the why, right? Why do I constantly crave that attention? Why do I need the, uh, feel the need to hear from my therapist that I'm sick enough? And some of it is um, the fact that no one's validated us before. We're, we finally have someone that does and we need that. Um, but I really think that another uh, component of it can be if we really struggle, let's say growing up, uh, we were emotionally neglected. People told us like, stop crying. You're making a big deal out of nothing. Or uh, people always just diminishing or minimizing our hurt or our pain without realizing it. This especially happens to men. I know um, a lot of the men that I've seen over the years will tell me, you know, as children, their parents would be like, boys don't cry, you know, brush it off and get up or like I don't know why you're so upset pull it together you're a man be a man like all these stupid stupid outdated things that people say um hopefully we stop this um but then they'll feel like you know forever that their feelings aren't valid and what they're experiencing is an overreaction when in fact it's it's a very normal reaction and so when we get in to see a therapist who actually, Hears us, validates us, allows us to cry and feel all we feel, then we might want more of that because we've been neglected for so long. It's like we have this big pit in ourselves that feels like it can never be full enough. And so, anyways, I'm just throwing all those things out there. But part of this comes from the fact that I would assume we don't have any internal validation, we aren't confident or a self-assured like our self-worth is is maybe non-existent and what and that's why we're looking outward for someone else to tell us how we feel is okay because we aren't able to do it for ourselves and that's part of the healing and therapy and a lot of it comes out of like the shame that we can build around ourselves and shame is if you don't know is the belief that something's wrong with us like we're broken and trauma um which you know, more and more of us are traumatized and don't realize it, but trauma and even anxiety, depression, having a mental illness can definitely lead into feelings of shame. And that can make it hard for us to to think that, that being us feeling the way we feel is okay. We think that everything about us is wrong. And so we may want someone else externally to tell us that we're, you know, that we're okay, that we're sick enough, that they're worried about us, they care about us. We're looking for that kind of affirmation to help soothe all the upset we feel. That that you know, because the shame stirs up all of this like guilt, embarrassment, um, invalidation. This like it it puts us down, it holds us back. And if we have someone, it feels like an you know, I don't know. It's it's like a we're in this in the ocean, and someone's thrown us a little tube you know, like a safety raft or whatever. And it can feel like, oh, if we can just get a hold of that, if I can just get a little bit more of that, I can survive. And so know that it's very common. The thing that I would encourage you to do with regard to this is to talk to your therapist about it, to tell them that this is what's going on. Because like, I know I might feel very, might sound very scattered and like I'm all over the place, but there's, this can come from a lot of different places. I want you to know that it's very common And it's usually born out of some kind of trauma or neglect or abuse in our past, Um, and that's why we're looking to our therapists to get some of that validation and that support and that concern that we really, really needed throughout our lives. And so, bringing this up in therapy and letting them know that this is something you're struggling with, you can talk it out and figure out where it's coming from and why, and then get the real answer to your question because in order for me to answer it like clearly, I'd have to know all the details. And also we might find it's coming from a lot of different places. It might not just be uh, the fact that, you know, you were told not to cry or pick yourself up when you were a kid, or it might not just be because your mom worked away from home or your dad or somebody wasn't there for you when they said they would be, you know, it could be all those things. We could have borderline personality disorder. There could be a lot of different things. I don't know. So we have to be curious. We have to seek to understand ourselves and our own experience and figure out why, like, what the where this urge is coming from, because it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Okay. Okay, question number six. Hey, Katie, how do I stop covering my trauma in humor in therapy? Very good question. I have a patient who does this. In today's session, I shared a really hard story. And at the end, I just made light of it and made a joke. And my therapist said, nice deflection. (laughs) I love that therapist. How do I stop doing this? So for those of you who don't know deflections, like just like it sounds like I'm deflecting, right? I'm, I'm drawing attention over here. It's like, hey, look over here. Okay. So then they don't look over here because this is really hard and this feels very vulnerable and I don't like it. And <clears throat> excuse me, humor and therapy is funny to me because it, it's a coping skill slash defense mechanism, meaning that when we feel very very vulnerable, very raw, like we put something out there that's really uncomfortable. We may not feel safe doing it. And so we try to like make light of it like, oh, but it's not a big deal. (laughs) Because we don't want them to focus too much on it, because we're it's a little too raw for us at the moment, right? So it's kind of self protective. That's why it's like a defense mechanism. It's a way of being like, yeah, this happened. I'm not really ready to dig into it all the way yet. Okay, so let's let's joke around. Okay, could be that. And it could be a combination of these things too, by the way, then it could also be the fact that we haven't been able to even allow ourselves to feel how shitty that thing was, right? Especially when it comes to trauma. Let's say we were abused as a kid for many years. We may have tried to make light of it or like, I'm just overreacting. You know, all parents like spank their kids. My dad just happened to like, you know, hit us a lot. Um, But that's okay. You know, we might try to talk it down. And have never truly acknowledged how painful and horrible and just horrifying that stuff was. Therefore, when we try to talk about it, we're like, "Oh, it's not that big of a deal," because that's how what we've told ourselves. So it's almost like just a habit that we aren't able to acknowledge how horrible it was. So then we try to, as soon as we talk about it, we're like, "We just brush it away," because that's just how we've coped internally. So it can be one of those kinds of habits. Then it can also. Again, be like that deflection, like your therapist is saying, because it's hard to say those things and just let them hang there. And it can be uncomfortable. And even we feel again, like that raw, like we're a little exposed. And so then we go to cover up right away. We're like, that's what the humor does is it protects us. It's, it, that's why I love the, I've talked about this in my first book about being a puffer fish. My old therapist used to call me a puffer fish because she was like, you're really soft and squishy. But if anybody gets too close and like threatens you, you stick your spines out. And this humor is you sticking your spines out. You're like, I'm too vulnerable here as just squishy puffer fish. Huh? You stick them out to protect yourself. And, and humor or is this, is, are those spines. It's like, it keeps you safe from getting wounded because we've already been wounded and we don't know how much more we can take. And so that's really what it is. And I think the way the way to stop doing this is to talk about the reasons behind it. And I know that that's like, you're like, what? But wait, but what if I just like try not to tell jokes? That's not really, we'll, we'll find another deflection, another uh, defense mechanism pop up. We have to talk about the fact that it's uncomfortable. And so that's what I would encourage you to bring up in therapy is the fact that, you know, you use humor, talk about this as the issue, not the trauma yet, we'll get there. But right now, when you talk about the fact that you use humor to deflect from the trauma, because, and then be curious about it, is it because I feel really vulnerable, and I'm not ready to do that? Is it because I've always kind of glossed over it, because it made me uncomfortable or feel, you know, I wasn't sure how I felt. Is that why? Is it because I've just always told myself it wasn't a big deal? What is it for you? Like, just be curious. It might be some combination of these things. It might be all these things. It might be none of these things it might be something else. But allowing yourself to, to be curious and talk about the process and consider you know, how long you've been doing this, if you can, like journaling can always help with this for us to go back and consider, you know, is there a time in my life when I used to tell a joke when something was painful? Yeah, I remember my friend was asking me about such and such and I made a joke or in school, if I didn't know an answer, I made a joke. Or, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, telling my friends that I got in a fight with someone I tell a joke, or I got had a breakup and I told a joke, like, I want you to pay attention to the ways in which you've used humor to protect yourself. And then I want you to be curious about that. Is it because we don't want to look uh, vulnerable or weak? Is that really triggering? Is that because of the trauma? It might be, but we don't have to get into that. We're just like addressing it. I think that's related to the trauma. I think that's related to this. I think that's related to that. And just allowing ourselves to learn will help you stop doing it because the real trick is to pay attention. Because by going back and noticing all the times you've used it, this will allow you in the present to recognize when you do it or hopefully, as we get better and better, recognizing when you want to do it, when you want to make a joke. If we can recognize that, then hopefully in therapy, we can practice. So let's say I'm talking about something really painful. And I feel the urge to make a joke, even I might even giggle in my own head. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Then I want to be able to say out loud to my therapist, I want to make a joke right now. So that means that I'm really uncomfortable. And I know that that can feel, you're like, I can't do that. But just thinking that those are goals that we will work towards, but working backwards is more like just recognizing when you used to do it, recognizing how often each day you want to do it, what are the triggers for it. Be curious. Let's learn about it. Let's educate ourselves about our own urge to take humor and cover up something that's painful. It's really common. I used to have a patient back in the day. Um, it's probably been like two or three years since I've seen her, but she used to talk about this horrific sexual abuse that she sustained for years with a huge smile on her face. And she would smile and she would sit on the edge of my couch and her feet would tap cuz she struggled with anxiety a lot and she would tell and i would say do you recognize that you're you're smiling while you tell me something that that i think is is very painful you know and it it took us a while to for her to recognize when she was doing it and for i i had to keep calling her out on it for a long time until you know she could feel okay and safe enough to cry about it which is really what she wanted to do she just never felt safe enough to do that and so that's kind of the goal is to to have your therapist be able to hold all that you've told her or him in the session um so that you feel safe to continue to share and know that it's not too much it's not going to overwhelm them that you're safe to talk about it and that they aren't going to harm you in any way with that information and anyway it's a process but you'll get there and i think just talking about it and recognizing when we're doing it is really key. Okay, question number seven says, Hi, Katie, how is talk therapy possible? When I can't talk about my feelings without crying and basically can't talk um, when I just cry all the way through. For me crying in front of others is associated with helplessness, rejection and out of control. That's interesting judgments you've got there. It feels so overwhelming in session. My stuttering, quivering voice, stuffy nose, etc. always disallow effective communication. I'd wait till I calm down, but another round of tears starts as soon as I try to speak. It's super frustrating and I'm worried that I might annoy my therapist too. No, not at all. I cry alone often and vent in my journal, so I don't understand why my tears are so out of control. What should I do? Um, Okay, and then there's another comment below this that I'll get into after I answer this. But I loved this question, because, first of all, I'm that person too. So when I go to therapy, if I've waited too long, which I do sometimes, I'm going to be honest, like right now, I probably should start therapy back up again, just for support, because 2020 is a goddamn mess. And I feel super stressed out. And I've been wanting to sleep more, which is weird. I don't feel depressed, but something's up. Right. And I'm like, Hmm, my little therapist spidey senses are like, you should probably talk to someone, but Sean and I are moving. So I'm like, okay, once we move, then I'll get in to see someone. Cause it's, you know, why start up some, but I could be moving in like three, four weeks. So it's like, that's, you know, that doesn't make any sense. So if I wait too long, when I go in to see my therapist, I just cry a lot and it's hard for me to talk sometimes. So I get it. And the interesting thing about it. So there's a couple of things it's normal, first of all. Second of all, I would, I would encourage you to journal about why it is that crying in front of others equals because you said it's associated with helplessness, rejection and out of control. What are your facts on that? I'd like to know where this is coming from. Because that is very interesting. And I would encourage you to try to talk about that in therapy. Okay, so the, that, that I'd want to dive into that. That's the first thing I want you to do is I want you to to figure out where this association is coming from. And if you have any past experiences, or other facts that you feel are facts doesn't matter, just check in your own facts, you feel uh, I don't even know what the word is, but like support that belief or that close association that you're telling me you have. And what I would, I what I think would be helpful is since talking in therapy is really difficult, I want you to write about it. And I want you to give that to your therapist. So this could be a journal entry, but it could also just be a way for you to communicate with your therapist for a while. And I would, you could write things down that you want to say to them or the way that you'd want to say that to them, and then just bring it into session and hand it to them. And if you can get it out, I would encourage you to say, I struggle to talk because of the crying right now. And so I wanted to give this to you. If you can get that out, if you want to cry right away, even before the door shuts, I get it. That's fine. Just hand it to them. And then they can read it and let us kind of uh, get out what we're feeling. And the reason that I cry a lot in therapy and can have tough, a tough time talking, and I don't know if this rings true for you, it's just a buildup. It's almost like I haven't felt like I had a safe space to just cry when I needed to. Or for me, it's not even just a safe space. It's like I just don't have the. The bandwidth, like I'm doing so many things that I feel like I have to get all that stuff done. And so crying just isn't beneficial at the time. I'm like, I don't have time for this nonsense. Like, that's how I am with myself. I'm like, you have to fucking do this thing. So just like get it together, cry later kind of thing. And so it's that buildup of all those times of not, when I back burner things, I don't always remember to go back to it. And it's almost like instead I'm just stuffing it down. And so when I go somewhere that like the only thing I have to do there is just like vent and express what I'm feeling, I'm going to cry because I haven't given myself an opportunity to. And I don't know if that's what's happening for you. It sounds like, you know, you do cry alone often and vent in your journal, but there's something special about having someone bear witness to the pain and bear witness to what you're feeling and validate it. And it can take us a little while to kind of uh, let that out. And I don't think there's anything wrong with crying through a a chunk of your session. I don't think there's anything wrong with struggling to talk for a a while. I would hope that we could get you to a point where you can talk for about half of it and cry for about half of it. That's kind of where I get to. And then it slowly goes less and less from there until I barely cry at all. And, you know, I'm able to communicate and move things forward a little bit more quickly. But I, I kind of enjoy that time. And I would encourage you to again, after checking your facts and better understanding that association that you have between crying in front of people and the helplessness, rejection and out of control. And then I would want you to kind of, you know, be curious about your judgment about it. Like what, why is it so such a bad thing now? Like, because you said it's super frustrating and you're worrying you're going to annoy her. I'm very curious about that too. Where are facts on that? Has someone told you in the past that your emotions were too much for them or that yours too annoying for them? Or are we such a people pleaser, or do we have a codependent kind of situation in our household, like where drugs or alcohol were present, or are we a parentified child, so that we didn't, there wasn't space for us to be ourselves, for us to take up space, or to feel like it's okay for us to be? All of those things I'm very curious about because you're not going to annoy your therapist. We deal with it all the time. Do not worry. And it's just. I, I think that in there, in that curiosity, in that self-discovery, are the answers to this and can help you better. I wouldn't be surprised. Okay, just hear me out. My hypothesis is that once we kind of give ourselves permission to cry and don't feel such judgment about it, it will go down and it will go away. Um, because I know personally I don't have any judgment about my me crying in session. I don't really care if I ugly cry if I'm like snotting all over. I just don't even care. It's the place I go to do that, that it lasts for maybe two or three sessions. And then it's like half a session, then it's a quarter of the session, then it's none. So I'm sure I have a feeling yours will be the same. That's my hypothesis. And then there was a comment below this that asked about confidentiality and therapy because they said they're afraid to even go into therapy at all because, you know, what they're saying could get out. Now, confidentiality and therapy I've talked about periodically. The truth is, legally, we cannot break the... You, You as the patient hold the confidentiality, meaning it's yours to break or not. That means that as a therapist, I can't tell anybody any of your business unless, here are the caveats. If you're under 18, then your parents... You still, as the child, hold the confidentiality, but your parents do have rights to know about things. Um, We used to call it drugs, sex, uh, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. So it's like if you're doing things that are putting you in danger and engaging in behavior that could be destructive to you in your life, then we're going to tell your parents. Okay. And because you're not an adult, there are some, you know, uh, like confidentiality is a little more complicated, but if you are over 18, which I would hope the person who asked this is then the only reasons i can ever break confidentiality is if i think you are a danger to yourself or someone else or if there's abuse going on so there's like a few things and i won't get into all the legals like we're not going to talk about tarasoff or all the different ways abuse can occur but if you uh, are hurting someone, like let's say you have homicidal thoughts, you want to kill somebody else, then I have certain things that I'm going to have to do to protect someone if the threat is imminent and I know who the person is there. I am legally bound to let them know or to do my best to try to warn them. Or if you uh, you know, are abusing a child, elder or dependent adult, I have to call uh, in California, it's Child Protective Services and depending on where you are in the world, it could be something different. Or if you're a danger to yourself, if I think that you're suicidal, and the threat is imminent, and you have the means, and you have a plan and all this stuff, and we've tried other me- other ways to keep you safe, and it's not helping, then I may 5150 you, I may break confidentiality to reach out to like your roommate or your family member that you live with, if I think it's safe to try to make sure that you're okay, there's things that I can do there but that's really it. Other than that, there's no other reason that I legally can break confidentiality. And if a therapist does and talks to someone else about your stuff, you can file a complaint and take their license. Okay. Question number eight. Hi, Katie. Is it possible to feel worse after therapy? 100% all the time. I have recently started working with my psychologist on processing childhood trauma as my parents were emotionally neglectful, although unintentionally. Of course, doesn't uh, negate your pain, though. Just want you to know. I actually used to look forward to the next session, but now I'm getting afraid of going to therapy because I'm feeling worse after each session. Also, it's getting harder to resist the self-harm thoughts in between session due to this. I really love your videos. Thank you. Of course. So, First of all, tell your therapist. Tell your therapist this is happening. You need to let them know that you your self-harm urges are going up and that you're not looking forward to sessions anymore because you feel worse after session. It's very normal when we're processing trauma and we're talking about things that are really uncomfortable. It's normal to feel shitty afterwards. I call it a vulnerability hangover. I've had it when I created some videos on my channel talking about why I'm having a tough time during COVID. I just... It made me uncomfortable because I don't do that stuff a lot. And that vulnerability of being myself and crying and I don't know, ooh, gives me the willies. I don't like it. So that vulnerability hangover is what makes us feel worse. And not to mention the fact that we're kind of like unearthing stuff that we had stuffed deep and buried deep. We're bringing it out into the light and that's uncomfortable. And the thing that we try to do after a session to try to bury it back real quick, just to, you know, so we can get through our days. And that's all fine and dandy. I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm just saying that that's like common, but we're often not able to cover it up enough. And each session, we're like unearthing it more and more. So it makes us really uncomfortable. And so uh, I would talk to your therapist and try to come up with some ways to cope in between. Like I talked about earlier, the uh, impulse logs, look up that video and let's start using some impulse logs, start talking to your therapist. I have about this and I have a video about 25 coping skills. I want you to find some that work for you because as we work through trauma, it's going, this is going to happen. We're going to have more self-harm urges because we're talking about the things that we don't talk about. Uh, we're unearthing the things that we've repressed. It's uncomfortable. We can feel really vulnerable. So we're going to, you know, feel overwhelmed and potentially be emotionally dysregulated more easily there's going to be a lot going on. So we're going to need more ways to cope. So I would just encourage you to come up with those coping skills so that you're more prepared to handle it and talk to your therapist about it. It's very normal. But another thing that you could say is if you feel worse and worse and worse and worse, and it feels like we're not getting better. We're like sliding into depression or suicidal thoughts are getting stronger. We need to let our therapist know and tell them that maybe every other session will talk about the trauma. I do that with a lot of my patients where one session will be a difficult session, then we'll go into a lighter session than difficult, light, difficult, light. And I know that they dread the ones that are difficult and that's okay. And a lot of them try to like distract. I had this patient, um, years ago who would come in on the difficult weeks, weeks and be like, this week was wonderful. And they would try to tell me this, like they'd weave me this story about all the things that went great. Um, and i would just sit and let them do it cuz it only lasted for a few minutes cuz there's only so much talking you can really do when you're trying to like distract, right? And then i'd say, "Okay, well that's great. I'm glad you had a good week because you know, we this week's a tough week. So let's get into it." And i would just move into it and i could tell they were like, "Damn it, that didn't work. My distraction technique didn't work." And so i know that it's hard, i know that it's difficult, but maybe finding a balance between the difficult times and the easier sessions cuz some sessions those quote unquote easy sessions are more a, a additional opportunity to process and kind of cope with all that came up from the last session. So it just gives us that more time to kind of work through it, make sense of it, cry if we need to, you know, maybe process some things a little bit more, all that stuff. It just gives us a little time to do it and help us to feel safe, can help us use some of those coping skills or resources that we're going to need to calm our system down and to soothe us. And we need some practice. And so those sessions can be used for that as well. And that's really what I would, what I would encourage you to do, but again, the first thing is to talk to your therapist and let them know that this is happening because they may not know how hard it's been for you or that the self-harm urges are coming back. And we need them to know because if it's been so triggering to you, we need them to recognize that maybe they're going too fast or maybe this is too much and help you, right? That's what they're there for. We don't want to make you move too quickly and, you know, have to process things so fast. We want we want to make sure we're going at a pace that's comfortable for you. Cool. Okay, moving on to question number nine. And I don't know if you guys love this too, but as the holidays come, I, I know it's it's not even Halloween yet. So like, you're like, Katie, slow your roll. No, the grocery stores need to slow their roll because they already have come out with like the holiday coffee creamers. And there's one that's like chocolate truffle and it's fucking delicious. And I highly recommend it. Okay. Question number nine. Hey, Katie, I was wondering which personality disorders are the hardest for you to treat? Or which clients with personality disorders are most rewarding to work with over time? Great questions. Also, to what degree is it possible to heal from personality disorders? I have avoidance slash schizoid personality disorder, and I feel like I'm annoying to my therapist, even if she says that I'm projecting, which I know I probably am, but I still worry that she doesn't mean it. Also, it seems confusing to me to be both schizoid and avoidant when one of them wants to have relationships and the other one doesn't. Is it more difficult to work with clients who have combined personality disorders? And are there some combinations you often encounter? And why do they often occur together? Do you think childhood emotional neglect is one of the main reasons to develop a personality disorder? I know I have a lot of questions, but I hope that's okay. And then there's a comment below about BPD, which I'll get into later. So when it comes to personality disorders, the most difficult ones to treat, if I'm being completely honest, is actually a antisocial personality disorder, otherwise known as people call them psychopaths, sociopaths, all that jazz, because they don't get help. They don't come in. Same as narcissistic personality disorder. The likelihood of someone with those two personality disorders coming in to get help and actually wanting to get help, not just to manipulate the therapist to get them to do what they want or say what they want. It's very, very low. And that's not to say that people can't get better or that they won't come in to get help or that they're not worth getting help. None of that. I'm just saying that it's really difficult because they often come in only because they're, they're part of a couple and the other member is like threatening to leave and they're not ready to give up that. Uh, I don't know. It depends on if they're a narcissist or not, but they don't want to give up that relationship or that. What's the word that people use? Why am I blanking you guys? I'm so mm-hmm. sorry. It's like when you get you, they take it from you. It's like supply sorry, that's the word, Uh, their supply. We talk about narcissistic supply a lot where they need a lot of adoration and energy and just they just take from people and another person isn't really thought of as a person more as their supply for all that they need and want and whatever. And so they're not ready to give up that supply yet, so they'll come in. Or someone with antisocial personality disorder may be forced in because of something else like, oh, Uh, could be a couple thing, could be their child has an issue and the, you know, their husband or wife is like, you have to come in or whatever, you know, their partner in life. Um, And so they'll come in that way. Those people are really hard to treat. I've encountered those people mainly uh, as parents of my eating disorder patients. And that's really it. I've never had someone come in that I know of who has one of those personality disorders and came in on their of their own volition just to try to get better and so that's why it's the hardest to treat because they don't think anything is wrong with them they think everything's wrong with everybody else and people are just pawns to be used in their game and it's a really it's a really terrible uh way to live their life and i honestly feel bad for them but it's hard to feel bad for people who don't have any care about it that's the thing that i think people struggle to understand because all of us have empathy most of us do right we have empathy for other people. And we're like, man, I feel bad for them. It would suck to be that way. But it's really hard. And I still struggle to comprehend the fact that they don't care. (laughs) They'll only say things to get people to feel and do a certain thing for them. Like it's all about them getting more attention or getting the job they want or getting a person to do the thing that they need them to do for them or being more popular, whatever it is. Um, Like I got pushed back years ago with that video I did with Shane about antisocial personality disorder and people like, how could you call them like icky and it feeling uncomfortable? And I'm like, because they have no empathy and it's hard to understand. And people are, instead of trying to educate themselves and understand what that's like, they want to be ignorant and just be mad at me for calling it as it is. And I think that we could all agree that it's really difficult to imagine being a human and not caring about other humans. And someone who has those type of personality disorders doesn't have that ability. It's almost like those of us with uh, depression, when we're deep in our depression, we don't have the ability to see hope or uh, desire for the future or things like that. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's impo- it feels impossible. The motivation can feel impossible. And for them, empathy is impossible. And I know that's really difficult to understand, but that's why it's so difficult to treat them because they don't really want to be treated. Does that make sense? I hope that you guys hear that and understand my point of view on that. But, you know, again, if you want to educate yourself, you can. But a lot of people just want to be mad at me for saying that. And I don't take it back because it's something that until you've encountered a person like that, you can't fully understand. Now, when it comes to avoidant and schizoid, so now moving into uh, oh, then the question, to what degree is it possible to heal from a personality disorder? I think it's completely possible. We have to be motivated and it takes time because the reason I almost hate even the fact that we call them personality disorders, because it makes it sound like something's wrong with like the shame of it has got to be so bad because it can feel like it's our personality. Something's wrong. We're broken in some way. And you're not. Personality disorder is unfor- Is an unfortunate term that we chose you know, as the APA chose to describe the fact that these are more pervasive mental illnesses, meaning it doesn't come and go. You know how depression come and go; we can have like a really bad chunk of time, and then we feel fine for a little bit. Same with bipolar disorder or uh, anxiety disorders; it can kind of come and go. Personality disorders happen all the time, and they're very they run throughout our life in different ways, and so it, that's why they call it that. When I really just think it should be pervasive. It's more pervasive. So we could still use the PD just instead of personality to say pervasive. So yes, we can heal. We just have to better understand how it affects us and how it you know, hangs around in our life and get some tools and techniques and ways to better manage. Like I've had tons of patients with borderline personality disorder who yes, still have those thoughts and urges bubble up from time to time, but they're better able to manage it because we have a ton of tools. We've processed through all the things that were upsetting them and the trauma in their past and the attachment stuff has been addressed. And they recognize those sensations in themselves and when it's kind of like rearing its ugly head again. And how do we manage that? Okay. So yes, it can get better. We just have to be motivated and we have to find a clinician who understands our issues. Now, okay, let's see what are the other questions. Is it more difficult to work with clients who have combined personality disorders? And are there some combinations you often encounter and why do they often occur together? To be truthful, I haven't haven't had a patient who I've I've diagnosed with more than one personality disorder at a time. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying that my patients, I haven't had people with more than one. Um, because usually, not all the time, but a lot of them, by diagnosing with one, you've ruled out another. That's does I'm sure there's many that can co-occur. It just, that hasn't been the case for me. It's usually a personality disorder and also a combination of some other like, you know, anxiety disorder, depressive disorder, things like that. And so, or mood disorder, not depressive disorder, but so that, that, those are my thoughts on that. And it is interesting for you to have schizoid and avoidant. And I'd be interested as to how you meet the criteria for both. But again, those are things you can ask your therapist if you don't feel like maybe you have both, or if you want more clarification. And so I don't, I don't really have an answer for why do they often occur together, because I haven't experienced that personally. I would love to hear your thoughts in the comments to give, you know, if you have something that you've been diagnosed with both and let us know what that is because I that's something that I still need to learn more about because I haven't experienced it personally and then do I think childhood emotional neglect is one of the main reasons to develop a personality disorder I think abuse in general is definitely one of the leading causes of personality disorders although a lot of people will say like antisocial personality disorder like the sociopaths or psychopaths it doesn't necessarily have to have they don't have to have something happen to them a lot of times it's just a genetic factor. Um, So not all but yes, I think abuse as a whole is one of the main reasons for personality disorders, not just childhood emotional neglect, I think, any kind of abuse. And then yeah, that's okay. Okay. So that was the question. And then there was a comment that said, if this gets answered, can you also talk about the extremely mean and heavy stigma attached to BPD and how you feel about it and how those of us diagnosed with BPD can't stop hating ourselves so deeply because of these stigmas? Yes. I actually have a video that's coming out on my main channel in two weeks, I think. Yeah. Two weeks. So, cause I just filmed it. So Sean's editing it now. Um, So it won't be this next Monday, but the Monday after. And now I will talk a lot about that and how the stigma, why the stigma exists and what BPD is and what it isn't. And I really think a lot of it is just because people who come in to get help. First of all, the thing that's great about borderline personality disorder patients is that people with that come in for help they always want help because they're so goddamn uncomfortable and nobody understands that that's really what's going on. People often think that those with BPD are lashing out at them because they want to make their life uncomfortable. And the truth is that that's just a glimpse into how uncomfortable those with BPD feel because I've described this a lot over the years they're like emotional burn victims. So any uh any slight or any of the the smallest uh kind of prick that they feel from you, like if they don't think that you care about them as much, or you're a little bit short with them, or, you know, somebody gave them a look that they thought was hurtful. It feels very painful and very intense. And so imagine that throughout your life, being that sensitive to the environment around you and not having any tools to cope with it. Of course, you're going to be more irritable, you're going to lash out, you're going to hate yourself and be angry at others. It's a very uncomfortable place to be in. And all the more reason for clinicians and other people to understand it, because with treatment, we can better manage how we feel and we can better uh, navigate the experiences in life and understand that it's it's our borderline personality disorder that's making us feel so uncomfortable. It's not actually a situation. We have to check the facts. And there's a lot of things that we can do, uh, a lot of emotion regulation skills and interpersonal effectiveness skills that can help us better to have a better life, really. And so I'll have a video that comes out where I talk in a lot more detail about this. And I have a ton of videos about borderline personality disorder. And maybe I'll do another one just about like, the stigma of BPD and just talk about it as a whole. But I really just want you all to know that everyone can get better. Those with borderline personality disorder just feel really uncomfortable and need some tools and ways to better regulate their system so that they don't take it out on themselves or others. Because we all know when we feel shitty, We take it on ourselves first or on others first, and then on ourselves, it goes both ways. So don't think that just because someone with BPD is lashing out that they feel fucking great because they don't. And I wish people would stop spewing hate online about that diagnosis because you can get better and there are ways to better manage it. A lot of people are just disgruntled because they had a relationship with someone who wasn't taking care of their mental illness. And we all know relationships also go both ways. So it's important that we you know, understand them seek to take care of our part of the relationship, also holding them responsible for their part of the relationship and knowing that we can get out of a relationship if it's not serving us anymore. That also exists. But anyways, I have a video that's coming out about it soon, where I'll talk all about it, what BPD is and what it isn't, and just kind of breaking some of those myths and misconceptions so that you can hopefully better understand. Cool? Cool. Okay, final question, question number 10. As someone who has trust issues, how do you find a therapist you trust? The few I've tried recently felt like they were just running through a script and not engaging with my personal issues. I need serious help, but finding a psychology graduate. Oh, I need serious help, but being a psychology graduate, I am always skeptical and feel like I can provide better therapy than them. LOL. Unfortunately, we can't do it for ourselves. So you're going to have to let that go a little bit. I wish more therapists were like you. Oh. Um, Okay. So. First of all, something that, uh, and I should have talked about this earlier, but something that we as clinicians, as a therapist, something that we need to do is you need to leave your therapist hat outside when you go into session, because you're not the one in control anymore. You're not a therapist when you're in session, you're a patient. And it's really important for us to have a space in our life, which I'd also encourage you to let take that hat off when you go home. Otherwise, you're going to burn out real quick. And nobody talks about that. I've had friends over the years who like, try to psychoanalyze everyone in their life and and they go into therapy and like kind of argue with their therapist and they just never get a break and they're burnt out in like four years so pace yourself um because we don't have to know all we don't have to do all we just trying to find someone that we feel that we can connect with remember think about it think about how you would tell someone to know if they found the right therapist or found the right treatment you just want them to feel like there's a little bit of a click and you feel like they they hear you and they understand. Now. If you feel like they're running through a script, first sessions are always like that. Consider all the goddamn legal stuff we have to go through. Like if you guys don't know, as therapists, we're not responsible for someone else, meaning taking them on as a patient until there's informed consent. So there's informed consent is like, Uh, You're consenting to treatment with me. I've told you about like HIPAA laws and the, the, the policies at my office. We talked about money. There's all these like paperwork forms that we have to go through. You sign them. We talk about them. I take you on as a patient. And then I'm responsible for you. On the internet, people seem to think that just because I'm a therapist, I'm responsible for everyone. And that is just not true because I can't be. That would be goddamn exhausting. And even just thinking about it makes me exhausted. So that just consider that. So the first session's a lot about that shit and where you've been. If you've been in therapy, how long on medication? Da da da. What are the issues you're wanting to get through? Yada yada yada. Uh, kind of putting together. At least for me, I usually tr- start putting together a treatment plan. What are your long term goals? What are the issues you're working on? And it takes. I mean, fifty minutes goes by like so quickly in that first session. So I'd give them a couple. That's why I always tell people to do like three, four sessions before you unless you get like a real bad vibe. And you're like their office is shit. They weren't paying attention. They're on their phone during session. That's not good. Anything like that. You don't have to go back. But I'm just saying if it's okay, and you're like, I'm feeling this out, give it a second. And you cannot give therapy to yourself. And we shouldn't be rating them on how well they give therapy because if we actually think about it with even with our therapist hat on, we know the best therapy occurs because of the therapeutic relationship. It doesn't matter how well trained that person is, doesn't matter how long they've been practicing, it doesn't matter. It really just matters that we feel connected to them. Then we actually can do the work we need to. So just think about those things because I've struggled with this. And I found I struggled more when I was actually in school because I was in graduate school and my dad had just died. And so it was my therapist had retired. It was just a shit show. And so my old therapist, Jody from before this had recommended someone and I went to him and I just, it was a guy and no offense to dudes out there. I don't want to see a dude therapist. That's not my thing. I don't like it. It was uncomfortable. But I found myself like chat, like checking all the shit he was saying, like, is this right? And then I remember going home once and I was talking to one of my friends about it. And she's like, seriously like why are you doing that to yourself is do you like them or not like is it therapy or is it not is it is it you learning or are you going to teach him to do better and she was right to like be like what are you doing why are you second guessing everything are you are you worried he's not trained enough really you know and the truth was I wasn't I was just maybe not I didn't like him and I wasn't ready I don't know and so anyways I say all of that I know I'm kind of rambling but The way to find a therapist you trust is to give it a chance to first, like in my first book, Are You Okay? I offer up a ton of like questions. I I forget there's like maybe five or six questions about like, do you want a male or a female? Now Now's not the time to be PC. Who do you want to see? What do you want them to look like? Uh, where do you, I mean, now it's COVID. So it's like over Skype a lot of times, but you know, where's their office? Is that convenient for you? Can you get there? I don't want you going to a place that you like, it takes you 25 minutes to find a goddamn parking spot because that's super stressful. I don't want you showing up for therapy, more stressed out than you were, you know, before. So just considering all of the options, all of the things that are happening and what you want in it. Do you want them to be older than you? How much older? think about all that stuff. No time to be PC. What do you want? And then trying to find some people who fit that. And then give yourself an opportunity to be a patient. You don't have to be the therapist. You don't have to be the psychologist. You can sit into it uh, and vent about things. Notice if they make eye contact and help you feel heard. First sessions are always a weird, awkward first date. It's never super comfortable. So allow for that and then give give it a chance. Trust takes time. You're not going to trust someone right away. But you should feel like "Mm, they hear me. They're with me. I kind of like them. I like them a little bit. I could get to know them. That's it. Period. I know it's hard. I know it's scary. Therapy is fucking uncomfortable and weird. But give yourself the time to check it out and to see what works for you. Because I think you might be surprised. Sure, there are people out there that are really bad at their jobs. But there's also people out there that are really good at their jobs and we just have to kind of give it a chance. So often, even like myself as a therapist, I like, it's hard for me at first to like take off that hat, but you have to kind of do it, like make a conscious effort to be present as a patient and just share what's going on in your life. Because the fact that you're looking for someone means you need some help. And you were saying, you know, you're, you're wanting to like Do some real hard work, and you're you know you want to deal with your issues, and you're gonna need them to to be there with you. So just make sure that you have that, you feel that. And I have a video actually too about how to know if you're seeing a good therapist or a bad therapist, and that can also help too. But just give it time. First, check in with yourself about what you really want in a therapist, what you're looking for, age, uh, sex, location, cost, all the things that could deter you. You know, in general and then you know make a few appointments and see who you you connect with the most and then just know that the trust as a whole is going to take time just like any relationship trust takes time i hope you found that helpful these are great questions you guys i always think they're wonderful and clearly we had a the theme uh, a theme again this week and i'd say the theme was more about kind of like self-injury and processing things and yeah I think it I don't know, you guys have a lot of questions about therapy, the process itself, I find that that's kind of what's happening today, too. But anyways, if you're wondering if you're new, sorry, I did this at the end, I should have done it at the beginning. But I ask for questions every Monday, except for next week, because I'm going to be gone. So we're filming two this week. So I apologize ahead of time. But I have the um, on the community tab in the opinions that don't matter. YouTube channel. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you're already there. But if you're listening, you can go to YouTube and just search opinions that don't matter. You'll see the, you know, it's it's Sean and I's podcast channel. And that's where this podcast lives as a video. And in the community tab there on Mondays, I think it's around 10am. I post asking for your questions, you can ask them there. And I just pick the ones with the most thumbs ups. And that's how we get them. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Please share this podcast. Please give it uh, reviews, you know, tell people if you like it and why so that people who are fluttering through podcasts can see what this is about and better understand what we what we talk about here on Ask Katie Anything. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and I will see you next time. Ask Bye. About your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask K.